An Instagram post gets an unexpected boost. A TikTok catches in the algorithm. Sometimes that's all it takes to launch someone into internet fame. But then what? This Blew Up is a new podcast documentary that reveals how social media stardom is made. It's a different kind of fame that's not always as glamorous as it looks. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm Alyssa Bereznak. You can listen to This Blew Up on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Listen, do you want to dick around for the next 10 15, 20, 45 minutes? Do you want to indulge a series of whimsical digressions? Do you want to perambulate? Or should we just get right to it? Let's just get right to it. Did Winona end up with the wrong guy? What is it that you want from me, huh? What is it? You want me to get a job on the line for the next 20 years until I'm granted leave with my gold-plated watch and my balls full of tumors because I surrendered the one thing that means shit to me? Well, honey, you can just exhale because it's not going to happen, not in this lifetime. Because she ends up with this guy. Spoiler alert, I guess, for the 28-year-old romantic comedy Reality Bites. Yikes. Me telling you that this movie is 28 years old is way ruder. And spoiling it, I do apologize. Reality Bites, 1994, starring Winona Ryder as a chain-smoking college valedictorian and aspiring documentarian adrift, romantically and otherwise, in grunge-era Houston. Love Triangle, will Winona end up with Ben Stiller, who directed this movie and also plays a bumbly but kind-hearted yuppie with a car phone and a Peter Frampton fetish and a soulless gig as an empty suit for a lame stain MTV-style network called In Your Face TV? Or will she end up with this knucklehead? Got a pothead, mama got a cookhead dad. Ethan Hawke is 23 years old when this movie comes out in 1994. And if you're wondering why here our friend Ethan Hawke is trying to sound like current 72-year-old Tom Waits after Tom sprinted up a mountain with a grand piano on his back, perhaps there's also a grizzly bear playing the grand piano on Tom's back as Tom sprints. Uh, It's called acting. 
Look it up. This song is called I'm Nothing, N-U-T-H-I-N apostrophe, because spelling nothing that way is realer. I'm the ultra-modern version, the American man. Listen to the way the word man dies in his throat, like a warthog with emphysema. That's pure 1994 masculinity. My friends, that's a little something called reality. Helen Childress wrote the screenplay for Reality Bites. She says, did you know it's reality bites as in sound bites? It's like verite little bites of reality and not necessarily reality sucks. Huh. Ethan Hawke is singing in character, I suppose, as the freeloading, smoldering, mansplaining, evocatively goateed, provocatively inert, I can fix him ass, philosopher, poet, leaky dreamboat, who does indeed somehow end up with Winona like 12 minutes of screen time after singing this song, which does indeed appear on the platinum selling Reality Bites soundtrack, tastefully sandwiched between tracks by Lenny Kravitz and Dinosaur Jr. Chorus. You can tell it's the chorus because after he sings it, he stops singing for a while. Sometimes that's the only way to tell where the chorus is. I really like Ethan Hawke. Man, first reformed, boyhood, before sunrise, Juliet Naked. Juliet Naked is a rad movie. Sincerely, he sings way better in that one. Ethan Hawke makes great movies. This movie, Reality Bites, is arguably a semi-great movie. This is a pro-Ethan Hawke shop. Why am I being such a grumpus about this? Maybe it's because Winona ends up with the wrong guy. Maybe. Some other time, perhaps, we will gingerly attempt to address the Winona rider of it all, right? From the late 80s forward, this staggering and mysterious power that the young star of Beetlejuice, Heathers, and Edward Scissorhands wielded amid a specific but seemingly quite large subset of growly but sweet alt-rock songwriters. I don't mean her actual dating history, the tabloid aspect. I mean all the songs people just assume were written about and thirstily addressed to Winona Ryder. Her vibe was exactly half clueless and half the crow, is how I will vaguely and gingerly describe my sense of her appeal. This phenomenon spans the decades, I suppose. There is a late 80s Bay Area punk band called the Winona Riders. That's funny and also rude. There's a mid-2010s noisy Canadian rock band called Winona Forever. That's a tattoo reference. Leave it alone. More to the point, there are anecdotally somewhere between 500 and 50,000 rock and roll songs called Winona Rider. These songs span the decades as well, though Unrest the great Washington, D.C. art pop band Unrest has one of the better songs called Winona Ryder from the early 90s. And that's before you get to all the songs not literally called Winona Ryder that are nonetheless allegedly about Winona Ryder. Yes, including the Primus one. Leave that alone as well. All with varying degrees of plausible deniability, right? A forlorn power pop ballad from 1991 called Just Winona isn't necessarily about that Winona, right? Could you be my long lost girl? 
No, I'm sorry, but this is totally about that, Winona. This is Matthew Sweet, the great, the stupendous, the power pop god, Matthew Sweet. This song is just called Winona. It's from his 1991 album, Girlfriend, which is my favorite album of 1991, if you want the truth. I'm not joking even a little bit. And I love this song profoundly. Oh my God, the pedal steel. Even if I can also be like, hell yeah, shoot your shot, Matthew. I can't believe I'm even good-naturedly mocking this song. I love this song. I don't mind telling you. Seriously, when he sings just I Feel Alone a couple times at the end, I was 13 when this record came out. This whole record, Girlfriend, is my Abbey Road. Dude, I'm still not joking. But yeah, the Winona Ryder of it all feels relevant. Here. Reality Bites is not just a mid-90s rom-com with slacker-ass alt-rock overtones. It's a mid-90s rom-com with slacker-ass alt-rock overtones that literally stars literally Winona Ryder. So in the movie, Winona's got a camcorder and she's making this documentary about her friends. Right, They're super 90s emotional travails. Janine Garofalo gets promoted at the Gap and takes an AIDS test. Steve Zahn comes out to his conservative mother. And Winona's supportive, lame-stained boyfriend, Ben Stiller, tries to sell her documentary to his bullshit sub-MTV network, but they botch it and commercialize it. Man, and she's betrayed, and Ben Stiller just doesn't get her. In this documentary, it's not about the money or anybody even seeing it or whatever. And Winona ends up with Ethan Hawke, even after he angrily sings a violent femme song at her. Dick move, fellas. I cannot in good conscience recommend the song I'm Nothing. But then again, Ethan Hawke didn't write it. Future Cheryl Crow collaborator David Bearwald wrote it, and he's cool. So let's say David wrote this song in character. And meanwhile, Ethan didn't write the movie either. At least that line's not in the movie. All right. My favorite thing about Reality Bites is how mad Roger Ebert got about this movie. God-tier film critic Roger Ebert. Two stars, says Roger Ebert, who goes on to trash Winona's character's documentary footage at great length, given that Roger is writing a daily newspaper movie review. Quote, the camera operator has no notion of how to frame a shot how to hold the camera steady, or how to choose subject matter. The result looks like something that might have been obtained by the monkey cam on the Letterman program. End quote. Look it up, kids. Furthermore, Winona's footage captures, quote, callow and superficial behavior by kids who do not inspire us to wish we knew them better. End quote. Furthermore, quote, on the basis of the footage we are allowed to see, Winona's character is not a filmmaker, but simply someone who plays with a video camera. Nor are the friends she photographs especially interesting. What Ben Stiller's character's people do to the footage is an improvement. And Ethan Hawke's character is a self-centered prig 
who is not half as clever as he thinks he is. End quote. In conclusion, quote, but of course these observations go against the deep-seated prejudices of the movie, which are that anyone who shoots documentary video footage of friends is a genius. Anyone who is pushing 30 and has a good job has sold out. And anyone who is simultaneously unemployed and hostile is a reservoir of truth. What strange force locks filmmakers into cliches and conventions? What unwritten law prevented the makers of Reality Bites from observing that their heroine can't shoot video worth a damn, that their hero is a jerk, and that their villain is the most interesting person in the movie. End quote. Roger Ebert is the literal best. Let me make two confessions here. I watched Reality Bites on VHS in 1994 or 95, somewhere in there, with my high school buddy Dave. Dave had the coolest mixtape, physical cassette mixtape, that his cool older brother's even cooler friend had made for him. Just a fascinating archetype for a 90s teenager. Your friend's cool older brother's even cooler friend, right? This dude, if I recall correctly, was crashing on Dave's family's couch at the time. Very cool. He's in his early 20s, maybe, and he seemed to spend his days talking about chicks and playing Jurassic Park for Super Nintendo. That's what I have chosen to remember about this guy. I guess this is growing up. Seemed idyllic. I guess the guy made cool mixtapes, too. The first song on Dave's cool older brother's even cooler friend's mixtape was by the Violent Femmes. My first confession is that at 17, I thought this song was hilarious. Have mercy on me. I got girl trouble up the ass. Girl Trouble by the Violent Femmes. From the 1991 album, Why Do Birds Sing? This is not the Violent Femme song Ethan Hawke angrily sings at Winona. In reality, Bites, that's added up, of course. Why can't I get just one screw, etc.? The hero is definitely a jerk in that moment. The first Violent Femmes record, self-titled from 1983 with a little girl peeking in the window on the cover. Blister in the Sun is like the fifth best song in the record. That record is unbelievable, dude. But so now you got a picture, two uber knucklehead 17-year-olds tooting around the suburbs. There's me riding shotgun in Dave's beat-up Honda Civic. I think I put my feet up on the dash and accidentally broke one of his air conditioning vents. Sorry about that, Dave. And we're listening to Dave's cool older brother's even cooler friend's mixtape. And we're just tittering our asses off at this shit. Coolest guy I knew when I was 17. My second confession is that Dave and I watched Reality Bites together, sat on the couch together, and we totally thought Winona ended up with the right guy. Ben Stiller was so lame, man, with his job and his suit and his convertible and his respect for Winona's feelings and his less smoldering handsomeness. And we tittered our asses off at the very last scene of the movie when Winona and Ethan Hawke are smooching on the couch He's singing a blues song and she jumps on him and they're smooching and they ignore a phone call. And we get to hear Ethan Hawke's outgoing answering machine message. That's the beep. Please leave 
leave your name, number, and a brief justification for the ontological necessity of modern man's existential dilemma, and uh, we'll get back to you. As a connoisseur, as a dabbler myself in amusing, outgoing, answering machine messages at that point in my life, I was just delighted by Ethan Hawke in this moment when I was 17. Now that I am not 17, I am somewhat less delighted by Ethan Hawke in Reality Bites. He uses the phrase wankarama. He answers the phone by saying, hello, you've reached the winter of our discontent. He disparages his romantic rival, that's Ben, by saying, did he dazzle you with his extensive knowledge of mineral water? Or was it his in-depth analysis of Marky Mark that finally reeled you in? Very 1994 reference. He describes life as a random lottery of meaningless tragedy and a series of near escapes. He describes his life philosophy as, I smoke my camel straights and I ride my own melt. Tell it to your blog. He woos the woman of his dreams. That's Winona by saying, you are the only woman that I could ever commit myself to. And I never had sex with somebody that I loved before. And I'm the only real thing that you have. Jesus. This guy's like if a Drake album could play acoustic guitar. I can't dunk. I suck at basketball in general, but I'm just tall enough that I probably should be able to dunk. But I can't. But I will totally dunk on Ethan Hawke in Reality Bites. I will make an exception. Remember when Vince Carter jumped over the seven-foot French guy at the Olympics? I will do that shit to Ethan Hawke in Reality Bites. There's your fucking existential dilemma. The only redeeming thing about Ethan Hawke in this movie is that his band is named Hey, That's My Bike. Hey, comma, that's my bike, exclamation point. Fantastic band name. Truly. Everything else about him, forget it. He has no job. He has no anima. He has no plausible career path. He has no ambitions of any kind beyond smooch wine on a rider, which, okay, but ugh, what's the long-term play here, Ethan? What's the medium-term? What's the short-term play? Having a job at all is uncool. Getting paid anything for doing something, even if that something really matters to you, sucks. For that matter, anyone who's nice to you and wants to help you get paid for what you love to do, that person sucks too. That's the explicit thesis of Reality Bites. Roll the credits. The first song playing over the credits to Reality Bites is When You Come Back to Me by the urbane and agreeable English rock band World Party. Dig the sax, man. We got Bowie vibes happening. Young Americans era. I'm into it. The best World Party song is called Is It Like Today? That's not exactly a hot take, but it's the truth. But I will say that this song is our friend Bill Simmons's favorite song on the Reality Bites soundtrack. Or anyway, Bill complained to me once that this song is not available on the current streaming service version of the Reality Bites soundtrack. Here in the mid-90s, of course, we're in the golden era of primo alt-rock junk drawer movie soundtracks. Teenagers are buying millions of copies of CDs for 20 bucks a pop, so let's just throw shit at the wall and see what sticks. And some of those soundtracks stuck, of course. Choose Your Fighter, Singles, Clueless, The Crow, Judgment Night, still not a real movie, Empire Records, The Crow, City of Angels, Spawn, Beavis and Butthead do America, Train Spotting, 
mall rats, Angus, that's the best one, etc. But with apologies to my dear friends and employers at Spotify, I must now speak my truth. And my truth is that the very best way to hear the Reality Bite soundtrack in full now is a cassette rip on YouTube. Some hero who directly ripped his or her physical cassette version of the Reality Bite soundtrack onto YouTube. The physical cassette is in the YouTube image. That's how you know it's real. That is the precise level of audio fidelity this specific nostalgic jaunt requires. I may, in fact, be catastrophically altering that precise level of audio fidelity by playing you Spotify podcast excerpts sourced from a YouTube rip of a cassette tape. But what are you going to do? Here's the Indians doing Bed of Roses. Life don't have to be no bed of roses. The Indians are nominally based in Los Angeles. I think, or at least the singer is, looking this band up on the internet is more challenging than I'd prefer. You know, that's what you get for calling yourself that sort of way. The best song from the Indians, though, is Look Up to the Sky, which I believe appeared on the alt-rock junk drawer soundtrack to the 1993 film California. It's California with a K. I never saw that movie. I don't know what the deal is with the K. The Reality Bite soundtrack sold 1.2 million copies in America and peaked at number 13 on the Billboard album chart. I don't know that this record as a whole is terribly helpful in explaining the 90s to anybody, including people living in the 90s. It might explain how the 70s and early 80s still loomed somewhat unnaturally over the early 90s. Very arguably, with apologies to Ethan Hawke, the three most significant musical moments in the movie Reality Bites are as follows. Number one, when Winona and all her young and pretty friends dance in a gas station convenience store to My Sharona by The Knack, a phenomenal power pop song from 1979. Number two, when just Winona and Janine Garofalo are driving and singing along to Tempted by Squeeze, a phenomenal power pop adjacent soul song from 1981. And number three, when Winona and Ben Stiller trade freckles in the back of his lame convertible whilst listening to Baby I Love Your Way from fucking Frampton Comes Alive from 1976. None more 70s. Ben Stiller's character literally says, Frampton Comes Alive, that album might totally change my life, to literally early 90s Winona Ryder in this movie before smooching her. And if that's supposed to make us think of him as a yuppie, lame-stained villain with no taste, well, joke's on you, pal. Because the most streamed song from the Reality Bites soundtrack on Spotify now is the reggae band Big Mountain's cover of Baby, I Love Your Way. Ben Stiller woos Winona with 1976 Peter Frampton. Ethan Hawke insults Winona with 1983 Violent Femmes. Ethan Hawke wins. Inexplicable. Nobody smolders that much. Chuck Klosterman recently wrote a book about the 90s called The 90s. It's fantastic, of course. And within 25 pages, he's deep into reality bites. And Chuck says basically that at the time, there was a generational divide, right? Roger Ebert was 51 years old when he reviewed Reality Bites. And of course, stuffy 50-year-olds would think that Winona should end up with stuffy 
terminally uncool Ben Stiller, but all the cool teenagers and 20-somethings would side with cool, lethargic, and real Ethan Hawke, right? But in retrospect, across generational divides, I think there is a pro-Ben Stiller consensus. Chuck writes, as it turns out, the mid-90s were the only time when the validity of this romantic conclusion was the prevailing youth perspective. It's an isolated, freestanding period where a person's unwillingness to view his existence as a commodity was prioritized over another person's actual personality. An authentic jerk was preferable to a likable sellout. End quote. Ben Stiller's last scene in the movie with Winona, he offers her plane tickets to New York so she can pitch the TV executives her version of her movie. He apologizes profusely. He is super supportive. What a dill hole. I think even in real time, this movie knew that Winona made the wrong choice. So it's got to stack the deck a bit. She smooches with Ethan Hawke, roll credits, but then there's quickly a mid-credits scene where we find out that Ben Stiller went on to produce a trashy TV show that obviously rips off Winona's documentary. It's like a Hail Mary pass to make him the bad guy. Doesn't work. Bad choice, Winona. Weird movie. Anyway, roll the credits again. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Accenture Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. My name is Rob Harvilla. This is the 80th episode of 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. And this week we're talking about Stay, I Missed You by Lisa Loeb from the Reality Bites soundtrack. The first song from an unsigned, from an independent artist to hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100. You know the next song from an independent artist to hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100? Macklemore's Thrift Shop in 2012. Make of that what you will. Anyway, I apologize for all the dicking around. You say I only hear what I want to. One super annoying thing about watching movies on streaming services now is that they try to stop you from watching the credits. Right? Within like five seconds, they try to kick you into another movie real quick. I rewatch Reality Bites on Peacock the not exactly first tier NBC streaming service Peacock. And right after Lisa Loeb finished just that line, like 15 seconds into this song, Peacock tries to punt me to a 2020 rom-com called My Best Friend's Bouquet. I haven't seen that movie either. 
I got no opinion on it one way or the other, but like, don't interrupt me while I'm listening to this song. You say I talk so all the time. So Matter of fact, I dicked around for so long, we're just getting right to it. Uh, again, the most compelling thing to me lately about the song Stay, I Missed You by Lisa Loeb, that's stay, parentheses, I missed you, close parentheses, is how oddly it's structured. There is no chorus as such, or there are multiple parts of this song that could plausibly be called the chorus. But even lyrically, the verbal structure, the syntax of this song is beguilingly odd. You say, I talk so all the time, so. Why does that work, that series of words? Have you ever thought about how clumsy this series of words should be, at least on paper? Don't understand if you really care. I'm only here negative. No, 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 I'm only hearing negative, no, 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 bad. And it fits perfectly in this song, musically and uh, syntactically. That part perfectly ramps us up to one possible argument for the chorus. For a song this fundamentally soothing and dulcet and barbed but sweet, there's something very pleasantly off-kilter about what Lisa Loeb sings and how she sings it. If I promise to give you $100 if you got it exactly right, I'm guessing you could still not recite from memory the exact series of words she's about to sing here. But I am guessing that you could recite it from memory emotionally. Well, well, throwing throne. Great song. Weird song. Great weird song whose greatness is enhanced by its weirdness. All right. Can we mix it up? Possibly shake up the format and whatnot. I wonder if we could actually do this in reverse chronologically. Start at the end. Let's try it. Lisa Loeb's doing great. Married, couple kids, actress, reality TV veteran, food TV veteran, Got her own line of coffee, got her own line of eyeglasses. She co-wrote and co-produced a musical called Together Apart. Her charity sends kids to camp. That's dope. She seems great. Her last album from 2020 is called A Simple Trick to Happiness. Here is a tender piano ballad called I Wanna Go First. I saw that song title and I thought, is she saying, is this about, yep. Trampled by rhinos or crushed by a train. It might sound extreme, but it's really quite sane. I did not predict that Lisa Loeb would sing the phrase trampled by rhinos. However, just to clarify, I wondered if it was a love song about how she wanted to die first, but that's as far as I got. The image of Lisa Loeb trampled by rhinos, I did not anticipate having to deal with this image today. Wow, that's a failure of imagination on my part. That's on me. There's a video for this song, dude. There are no rhinos in it. If I suffocate slowly, don't call the nurse, because living without you is definitely worse. However hard you think it is to write a song this goofy, but also this achingly sincere, it's like 500 times harder. Great song, weird song. 
A simple trick to happiness is Lisa Loeb's ninth album for adults. She's also put out six children's albums, six albums of kids' music, starting in 2003. Her last children's album from 2016 called Feel What You Feel won the Grammy for Best Children's Album. Me, I'm partial to her 2008 kids' album, Camp Lisa, if only because it includes a song called The Disappointing Pancake. It slipped upon some syrup and the butter ricocheted. Then it rolled and it rolled and it rolled and it rolled a disappointing pancake. Great song. Steve Martin on banjo. This isn't working, though. Reverse chronology is too weird. What the hell? Sorry, that's on me. Also, let's start over. Let's get right to it. Let's get right to it for the last time. Lisa Loeb was born in Maryland, but raised mostly in Dallas. In 1990, she graduates with a degree in comparative literature from Brown University up in Providence, Rhode Island, the gilded armpit of New England, where she also forms an acoustic singer-songwriter duo with her friend Elizabeth Mitchell. They call themselves Liz and Lisa. They get quite popular on campus. They make a few records. Liz sang lead vocals more often than Lisa, but here's Lisa singing lead on a song from 1989 called Bowls and Fishes. Come on, baby, you don't light my fire. Don't light my fire. Don't light my fire. Don't light my fire. That's funny. They graduate from Brown. They keep at it for a while, but eventually Liz and Lisa cordially split up. Elizabeth Mitchell, in fact, goes on to co-found the New York City indie rock band Ida. Lisa Loeb, meanwhile, has also moved to New York City and constructs her own spotlight and then steps into it. It's a snow day. It's a Here we got Lisa Loeb on our first solo release, The Purple Tape, from 1992. Cassette only. She sold it at shows. A little more polished than a plain old demo, but still bone simple. Just vocals and guitar. Near as I can tell, the actual cassette tape is not purple. Just the cover, which is too bad. But I hasten to add that this is three years before Raekwon's Purple Tape. You best protect your neck. This is the first song in The Purple Tape. It's called Snow Day. The reissued CD and streaming version of the Purple Tape includes a lengthy and quite charming interview with Lisa, and she talks a lot about wanting to be perceived back then as a singer-songwriter, not a folk singer. She worried any woman with an acoustic guitar was immediately pigeonholed as a folk singer. She wanted to be known as a singer-songwriter. Down the line, that would give her more freedom to push her sound more toward rock alt-rock, whatever. She could form a rock or an alt-rock band. The stylistic freedom of being a singer-songwriter was important to her. The songwriter part was especially important to her. As for the songs she was writing, they weren't raw and totally transparent diary entries, but they weren't exactly oblique either. Listening to this song, Snow Day, you already know what a snow day feels like. You remember what a snow day feels like. And I think a lot of the images I use are the sun and the moon, and it's kind of like the vocabulary you learn when you're a child. And so I feel like a lot of those clouds, stars, moons, those are very 
concrete and symbolic. And I think that makes it feel less abstract. I will be honest and say that at first I found the purple tape to be unnervingly not abstract. If you even set foot on a college campus in the 1990s, if you have any open mic night experience, collegiate or otherwise, as a participant or as an audience member or as like a hostage, the purple tape will take you back there. Man, Lisa's clear, bright, buoyant, mournful voice. Lisa's clear, bright, deft and crystalline acoustic guitar. Election day, right? My polling place was a student union type building in a tiny university in my town. There's classrooms, meeting rooms, whatever, but also a coffee shop right in the front. Tons of collegiate ass college students milling around with their laptops, two baristas clinking bottles, grinding beans, spraying foam. And as I'm standing in line to vote, I'm not listening to Lisa Loeb at that exact moment, but I've got the purple tape in my head milling with all this visceral coffee shop ambiance. And suddenly, bam, I'm back in college. I'm transported like I warged into a college student's body. And this part ain't Lisa Loeb's fault, but my immediate response was like revulsion. Like, oh God, I don't want to be in college. Like, ah, I guess that's preferable to any other reaction. Depending on your personal history, be careful with this purple tape is what I'm saying. That's from the next song called Train Dreams. And I will be honest and say that my first reaction was like, well, this isn't exactly Ani DeFranco in terms of scouring literary bare-knuckled hostility. But Lisa's deliberately childlike vocabulary and imagery, it gets to you. It grows on you. It grows in you. She's got a few great early songs that convey a sentiment she summarizes as, you're really dumb, but you used to be cool. Great song genre. My favorite song on the purple tape, and in a later iteration, my favorite Lisa Loeb song overall is called Do You Sleep? I don't know, and I don't care if I ever will see you again. You used to be cool, but now you're really dumb. Here's something else she said in that purple tape interview that really stuck with me. It was funny because after this song was written, grunge became very popular and there were a lot of angry women singers, you know, that were considered the angry women singers or, or, you know, more bold. I was quiet and acoustic and these other women like Liz Fair or Courtney Love were more strong. That's quite an appealingly broad anger spectrum already, the distance between Liz Fair and Courtney Love. And you can decide who's on which end of that anger spectrum between the two of them. Uh, But sorry, please continue. I would always say, you know, they might write a song, they stub their toe, and they write a song about the pain they feel when they stub their toe. But as a writer, I would write about, oh, gosh, I should have seen that coming. Oh, how does my toe feel now? You know, like all the different sort of obsessive and neurotic thoughts all about that subject. Oh, I felt so much better before I stubbed my toe. So we got a young, quiet, but quietly quite bold singer-songwriter 
gigging constantly in the quite vibrant early 90s Manhattan acoustic cafe type scene, handing out copies of the Purple Tape and making industry connections and learning about the music business and going to seminars like CMJ and shit. And also she's got an apartment down in the village on Mercer Street near NYU. And in fact, she lives across the street from young famous actor Ethan Hawke. And they get to talking Nathan's got this movie Reality Bites coming up, and it's not that simple, but it's kind of close to that simple. Apparently, first, Lisa was invited to take a shot at writing the song I'm Nothing. Apparently, they really wanted a song in this movie called I'm Nothing, and I'm guessing her version was better, but they didn't use her version. But then so later, Ethan goes to see Lisa play another show, and he likes another song of hers, and he passes a tape of that song on to Ben Stiller, and boom, it's playing over the end credits to Reality Bites, and it's the number one song in the country. And yeah, relative to the usual convolutions of the music industry, it's all pretty simple. She wrote it initially for Daryl Hall, as in Hall and Oates. Hall and Oates is in like Sarah Smile, speaking of rad classic rock songs from the mid-70s. She heard Daryl Hall was looking for songs for a solo album. That makes sense. Daryl Hall singing Stay I Missed You makes sense. But this was destined to be Lisa Loeb's song, her breakout, her historic unprecedented, somewhat shockingly chart-topping breakout song recorded in a two-bedroom apartment on 52nd Street between 9th and 10th with her band Nine Stories. It should be clunky, but I always dug how that name flowed. Lisa Loeb and Nine Stories. It's a J.D. Salinger reference. Her sound, as exemplified by the Purple Tape, doesn't need a ton of embellishment. Just a tiny tasteful amount of embellishment sounds just miraculous you said that i was naive i thought that i was strong i thought hey i can leave i can leave oh but now i know that i was wrong because i missed you the harmony on the word naive man i can't believe this song isn't in the movie itself Just the credits. There's that whole montage right near the end of the movie where Ethan Hawke and Winona Ryder are torn apart and missing each other. And he's smoking in a hospital right next to a giant no smoking sign. And she's smoking and moping over a beer at the cool rock club. And this is a set of circumstances that calls quite explicitly for a song called Stay I Missed You. But no, the montage song is U2's All I Want Is You. Which, okay, that's secretly a top 10 U2 song. But even that song's from 1988. It's from another movie. Along with Stay, you know the other truly great song on the Reality Bite soundtrack that's actually from the 90s? Spin the Bottle by Juliana Hatfield. Everybody's watching. Everybody's looking. She's such a sucker. He don't want to fuck her. I'm so mad that I can't find the radio edit of Spin the Bottle, which I cherished in high school, because it just hilariously obliterates the word fuck there. It's one of those space laser beep edits that draws way more attention to the word than just singing the word. 
Eat a wall and a beep. Her just delightful Juliana Hatfield from Boston, the less gilded other armpit of New England. Juliana Hatfield, formerly of Blake Babies. She's more or less solo now, leading her band, the Juliana Hatfield Three. If we hadn't already dicked around so much, it'd be fun to try and plot her on Lisa Loeb's quiet and acoustic versus angry and bold scale with Liz Fair and Courtney Love. I got the Juliana Hatfield 3 record, Become What You Are, from 1993 in a Columbia House transaction, if I recall correctly. Spin the Bottle is on that record as well. And I have to say that Juliana excels at quiet but remarkably angry opening lines. That song's called Supermodel, and that's how this record starts. The next song's called My Sister. It was a big hit on alt-rock radio, and I suspect that's why I got this record from Columbia House in the first place. Unbelievable. First ballot, first line, Hall of Famer, My Sister by the Juliana Hatfield Three. This song's a little dangerous for me, though, uh, sentimentality-wise. So my senior year of high school, a close friend of mine died in a car accident. Uh, Four kids died in a car accident. My friend, her close friend, another girl, another junior from my school, and two boys from the next town over. I remember somebody calling me and giving me the news. I remember calling other people to give them the news. And it was awful. It was devastating. I believe that's the one and only time I've been a pallbearer for someone younger than me, which by default arguably makes that the worst day of my life to date. It occurs to me the very recent Lisa Loeb song, I Want to Go First, is about that idea. But I go to the wake, right? I think possibly the joint wake for both girls, and it's held in the packed basement of the funeral home, and I walk in, I descend, and it's, you know, this 360-degree panorama of sobbing teenagers, and my close friend's younger sister is there, deep in unimaginable mourning, surrounded by sobbing teenagers desperate to console her. And so now any 90s alt-rock song with the word sister in it anywhere is still potentially quite destabilizing to me. But yeah, here I am at this wake, and I too am a sobbing teenager. And also, Lisa Loeb's Stay I Missed You is playing on a loop because that was my friend's favorite song. Now, first of all, I very much doubt this song was playing on a loop the whole time, right? That sounds quite melodramatic. That's a sobbing teenager's embellishment, I suspect. I wonder even if it was the basement of the funeral home. That feels melodramatic too. I descend. I don't know. A joint wake, a dual wake. I don't know. They played Stay I Missed You at least once. And okay, possibly they played it a couple times, two or three times. The whole time, the whole night, I don't think so. But you'd think playing it once is enough, right? To bind this song to this singularly terrible moment in my head forever. Certainly. Until the end of time, whenever I hear Lisa Loeb's voice in any context, I will now picture my friend alive, alone, happy, oblivious, 
traipsing around her bedroom, listening to her favorite song. You'd think that, wouldn't you? I thought that. I'd assumed I'd never want to hear this song again. And that's all the detail I think is appropriate here. And the longer I talk about this, the more melodramatic it's going to get. But what I'd like to know is why that's not necessarily the first thing I think when I hear this song. Logically, Stay I Missed You by Lisa Loeb should be, I don't want to say destroyed, but yeah, inextricable from this cavern of grief and despair, synonymous in my head with a funeral home basement, maybe, full of sobbing teenagers, myself included, but it's not. And sister songs don't always trigger it either. They usually don't trigger it. I can hear the opening riff of Stay I Missed You and listen to this song in full and think medium hard about this song semi-professionally and simply indulge in some good old wistful nostalgia and not think about any of that terrible shit at all for quite a long time. And I'd like to know why. If you've gotten this far into this episode, let alone contended with the previous 79 episodes of this show, you are aware that 80% of this show is just me going, I remember once I was eating a salad and this song came on and it was raining. I'll never forget eating that salad, listening to the song while it was raining. And it's like, what? Who? Why? Bizarrely vivid and insultingly mundane personal reveries. That is my brand. Never could cut it at no corporate job. Destroyed is the right word. In a melodramatic sense, I am wired for destruction. Stay I Missed You should be destroyed for me. And it's not. This leads me to the conclusion that I've got some kind of subconscious defense mechanism. It's tempting to say that this song is masterfully written and durable enough to withstand all that emotional baggage or whatever. But quite frankly, I don't think the song or the songwriter has anything to do with it. At this point, it's just that there's an individual personal threshold for melodramatic and tremendously painful memories triggered by old songs. It's not quite denial. It's not quite a repressed memory, but the Lisa Loeb song comes on in some deep, mysterious, clandestine sleeper cell in my brain that I'm truly grateful for activates and just whispers, don't. And most of the time I don't. You don't have to tell me if any of that resonates for you with any other song in any other awful situation. Of course, I hope none of that resonates for you at all. I do wonder, though. How hard can we pivot out of all that, do you think? I wonder about that also. Recently, I tried manifesting something just to see if that whole thing worked. Manifestation, it didn't work. It's all bullshit. But I tried to manifest a Lisa Loeb episode of Mark Marin's WTF podcast. I suspect you're familiar with the sweetheart, grumpus, comedian interview podcast, WTF with Mark Marin. There's no father to his style, podcast-wise. Suddenly, I just decided that Mark Marin needed to interview Lisa Loeb just for the fantastic dissonance between their personalities. The steely bubbliness meets the cuddly grumpusness. Mark Marin going, who are your guys, and so forth. Nope. There is no such WTF episode. That's the last time I try to manifest anything. Great consolation prize, though. Lisa appeared in the spring of 2022 on the lovely childhood nostalgia podcast, How Did We Get Weird? Hosted by Vanessa and Jonah Bayer. 
Vanessa, of course, the actress and Saturday Night Live alumnus, her brother Jonah, the esteemed music journalist. They talked with Lisa Loeb about landline telephones for 20 minutes. It was enthralling. I am 100% sincere. Lisa describes meeting Craig Robinson, the actor and comedian, and Lisa says, When we shook hands, his hand was like a donut. His hand was like a warm bear claw. Tremendously charming. But they started out talking about Lisa's quite distinctive and large cat-eye glasses and her Betsy Johnson dress from the Stay I Missed You video, shot in one take by Ethan Hawke, and her personal style, which he summarized as cute but evil, and her brief summer sojourn at the Berkeley College of Music, surrounded by hardcore guitar players who were all shredding. They all wanted to be shredders. And at this point, Vanessa Bayer has a question for Lisa Loeb. And shredding, just for those of us who little less, it's like tweedly deedly deedly dee. Okay, okay, got it, got it, got it, that kind of stuff. Okay, okay, cool. That's all I got. Hard pivot wise, that's my best attempt to burn some sage in here. Rock stars, pop stars who peak immediately, whose first hit song is by far their biggest hit song. Sometimes they spend the rest of their careers and often quite short careers, explicitly and thirstily chasing that first peak, and they never succeed. And that futility doesn't diminish their initial glory exactly, but it's a little sad, maybe. Whereas other overnight success-type stars seem far more content with peaking early, and they settle into long, odd, adventurous, unpredictable careers, heightened by this ease, I guess, this refreshing lack of angst about whether they'll ever have another hit half as big. This is some hardcore, no data, just vibes analysis I'm laying on you here. But I got that relaxed, contented, adventurous, down-for-whatever vibe from Lisa Loeb immediately. The first major label album from Lisa Loeb and Nine Stories comes out in 1995 and is called Tales. T-A-I-L-S. There's a drawing of a cat on the cover, a blushing cat cute but evil the best song is a full band version of her old song do you sleep i told you this is my favorite lisa Loeb song and i meant it do you sleep and this alt-rockish version especially is about how lisa Loeb stubbed her toe and it hurt, and it made her angry. It's a good look for her. Anger. I think the first time I heard the whole Tales album, I was still in high school and visiting a friend of mine who was now in college. Might have been my first time ever in a college dorm room. We're sitting on the floor of her dorm room. We're playing cards or something. She puts on Tales. We're listening to Lisa Loeb, and we get to a boppy little upbeat song called Garden of Delights. I see the lights move. Moonbeams and stars, childlike, not too abstract. And we're into it. And sitting there playing cards on the floor, I become aware all at once that my friend and I were both nodding our heads rhythmically in a very pronounced, corny, hey, this is pretty good sort of way. And in the moment, I feel this brief flash of embarrassment for us, even though it's just us, even though we're both doing it. 
I can't explain it. Just a bizarrely vivid and insultingly mundane moment in time that I remember every single time I hear this song now. I've got millions of ultra-mundane moments like that, and I'm grateful for all of them, and especially grateful to them for the other way less mundane moments that they might be blocking out. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Our guest today, we're so honored to welcome Ryder Strong, actor, filmmaker, podcaster, star of the classic 90s sitcom Boy Meets World. His podcasts include Pod Meets World and Literary Disco. Ryder, it's great to talk to you, man. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm a, I'm a huge fan. I discovered, oh my goodness. I discovered this podcast this summer and it became uh, like all I was listening to, just going <laughs> through song by song. And you know what's really cool is like, I thought I knew stuff about like, bands from the, but there were so many so many facts i didn't know so i i've learned a lot from you rob you've you've been a great resource for me well that's tremendously fine i just make everything up I okay it's all- so that's <laughs> sorry about that but but thank you anyway um so Ryder, let's just get you on the record here did winona end up with the wrong guy yes <laughs> this is oh. The thing is, I I was the biggest Reality Bites fan. Um, I was the right age. For whatever reason, it was the movie. I had a Laserdisc player, and I only had a few Laserdiscs that I owned, and this was one of them, Reality Bites. And so whenever I had a a circle of friends, and whenever we had nothing else to watch, because we hadn't gone to the video store or whatever, we would end up watching Reality Bites. And it was like one of those movies we always quoted within our friend group. I remember I used to make uh, mixtapes and I would actually include clips from the movie. Like I would record, you know, That's scenes. Of, yeah. Move, yeah. So I loved it. And it wasn't until I guess maybe my twenties or thirties that I rewatched <laughs> it and realized I don't, I don't get this movie. <laughs> what, is, what is this movie saying? Um, right. Yeah. I think, you know, I think, I think at the time when I was 14, 15, I was in love with Winona Ryder, and I wanted to be Ethan Hawke, right? Like, there you, you want to be, be the the smart, cool guy who's kind of above it all and critical of everyone. Um, <laughs> right. But now I look at it and I go, what the movie ends up doing is sort of like personifying the, you know, in the love triangle, it personifies the 90s obsession with selling out and and, and like the elevation of being a slacker. Right. Um, and that doesn't really make sense to me anymore. Like why, why in the nineties was everybody so into like, Oh, you don't want to be a sellout. Uh, yeah. in retrospect, I'm like, why not like, do what you love, make money, <laughs> go, you know, be successful. Um, and so I think the movie kind of is, is weird in that way. I mean, it still is a fun, I mean, mostly what I realize now looking back on it too, is, uh, Janine Garofalo and Steve Zahn are wonderful mm-hmm. in it. Um, they are, they really are. And that they're, they're, you know, the, the comedy is still funny, um, but certainly the values of the film, I question. 
it sort of defines selling out as having a job at all. It ends right. with them like neither of them have a job or any aspiration at all. They're just making out on the couch, which is exactly. great if you're Ethan Hawke <laughs> and Winona Ryder. But like, yeah, it's like selling out the term is broadened to include receiving money for doing anything ever. Well, I think the implication, which and I think the real failing of the film is that the implication is that he's a musician and she's a filmmaker. But the, mm. we only see him perform one song and it's okay. But like... <laughs> We don't yeah. see him like working hard at his art. We don't, and she is a horrible <laughs> filmmaker. That's the central problem. She's awful with the camera. She's just filming her friends. She has no angle, no yeah. uh, structure to what she's doing. She has no plan. She just thinks that like, I'm just by running around with my crappy VHS camera, I'm being a filmmaker. And it's like, no, you're not. Like if you're an intern at a TV show, like talk to the camera guys, like start learning how to be better at what you're doing. But she doesn't want to get better. She just wants to do less work. I remember, right. and I, I read the Roger Ebert review and this was his, I was gonna his, say. <laughs> his criticism is he's, he's basically like Ben Stiller's re-edit of Winona's uh, footage is the best version of her is footage better. and it's right. true it, and that that like that 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 just deflates the central argument of the the movie right it's like if if she were a great artist or she had a point of view within her filmmaking that was a good argument or or something interesting to say about the world i could i could say like oh yeah there's there's value there but instead it's just kind of like no man just don't you know just sit on the couch and make out and play play your guitar <laughs> and be cooler than everybody don't worry about it don't have a job it was, it was like the one window where that was a job, where right. not having a job or any desire to do anything ever was like the coolest possible thing you could do. That right. was 1993 and yeah. only 1993. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, where does this movie sit for you in like the pantheon of 90s rom-coms? Are you a clueless guy, a can't hardly wait guy, a city of angels guy? No, you know, uh, <laughs> clueless, funny, I hated it when it came out because I completely mm. missed the levels of irony. <laughs> like, sure. I just thought that it was sort of celebrating a valley girl, which is the dumbest thing and so sad to have to admit. But yeah, um, you were a teenager. But yeah. yeah, but then I saw that in my 20s in college. I actually watched it in a film class in college, and I was like, this movie's brilliant. Yeah. Um, no, my favorite would would be uh, Before Sunrise, the, oh, the other course. Ethan Hawke rom com. Ethan again. Yeah. That, I think that that movie, I loved that. That was another one that I was really into around that time. And then I think the sequels have been uh, I, even better. I think the second one is one of the best movies ever. So that, I still like, still think that's a great film. But no, I never, I actually never seen Can't Hardly Wait. Yeah, so I don't know. I, I, I got more into, yeah. So Before Sunrise was probably my favorite of the of the era, definitely. It's like the nicer version of his Reality Bites character because he doesn't really have anything going on professionally and before right. sunrise either. And he's just sort of yakking away the whole time. Right. And he's like kind of insufferable, but in a loving way. Like it's right. interesting. <laughs> well, there's also her, she's there to sort of deflate him and like poke, right. poke at his like, you know, pretentiousness. And, and they like, they do that to each other throughout all three of those films. And I think, I also just think that he, he is smart. Like they give him good arguments. They give her good arguments. Whereas like reality bites, it's like, it's just quippier and sort of more superficial, yeah. you know, whereas like before sunrise, sure. like, it takes it there. It's like, if you're going to be the pretentious, you know, Hemingway quoting guy roaming around <laughs> uh, Europe, like give that person yeah. two hours to do that and like l soul. make that the whole yeah. story. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, the full reality bite soundtrack is like a very strange animal for me. Like a lot of the songs are seventies and eighties. Like it doesn't have the maximum nineties feel that I get from like the <laughs> right. crow or waiting right. to exhale or whatever. Like did any <laughs> soundtrack from that era, especially speak to you then or speak to you now? Well, at the time, I think, I think the ultimate, like what takes me back if I hear it and, and I, and I remember just in every car we'd be hearing was, was the Pulp Fiction soundtrack. I feel like that, you know, because it was also, it had quotes from the movie in it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I just remember listening to that start to finish with all the time and everybody's car, whenever I was getting a ride with somebody and (laughs) that was just, um, but you know, similar to, to to this sound, to Reality Bite soundtrack, it um, it doesn't actually have many songs like from the '90s, or you know, it's all over the map no. as far as like right. tonally. So the real album I was thinking about um, that is the ultimate '90s album uh, is Empire Records. Yes. And what's funny about that album is Great I've one. never seen the movie, but I know no. every song on the album. <laughs> like, and we just listened, to, and it's and it's also like a compendium of '90s bands, but not their hit, biggest hits. You know, so it's right. like, Gin but I know every, I know yeah, every yeah. word, uh, I know every line, and yet, like, it's not the big hits from those bands. Um, and like I said, I've never seen the movie, but I know that soundtrack inside out. So I feel like that's the ultimate. It was like clearly a soundtrack looking for a movie. You know, like that's <laughs> that's what it that's why it exists is to just sure. could get a bunch of '90s bands together. Yeah. I was going to say, knowing the soundtrack that well without having ever seen the movie, that feels like a very deliberate decision on your part. Like, did you go out of your way to avoid the movie, to avoid it ruining the soundtrack for you? I don't know. That's a great question. I don't know. I, I just never got around to seeing it. You know, it's it's so it's so hard to like wrap your head around now the concept of like content being hard to find. <laughs> but like, right. you know, I, if I didn't get That's it at true. the video store, I didn't didn't come by it. Like you had to seek yeah. out stuff. And I think by that time, because that came out a little bit later, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, yeah. I really, I, I was starting to become a really pretentious film snob. So I would be seeking <laughs> out older films. As you and, do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So at that point, I probably stopped, you know, renting things that were more contemporary or, you know, I would, I would be either going to see stuff at the movie theater or like going back into like deep, deeper cuts from back from de- generations past. Right. I don't know if they ever put that one on the laser disc either. So maybe it was maybe it was a format issue. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, it seems like for millions of people, like Boy Meets World was the signature iconic fictional rom com of the nineties. Like, did yeah. you watch these movies and think like this is terrible romantic chemistry? Like my show's way better at this stuff. I'm a way better best friend. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I I mean, I always put movies on a pedestal, like above television. Um sure. so and I never watch my own show. So Okay. I, I would never have said that. I, you know, I, I have, I mean, that's what my, my, my podcast pod meets world has sort of been all about is like me reevaluating the right. show and, and appreciating it because I didn't, I, at the time <laughs> it, it, I had fun. I loved the job. Like it was fun to work sure. on, but I, you know, I wanted to be doing Ethan Hawke movies. Like I wanted yeah, to be, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to be in film. I wanted to, you know, or on stage. Mm-hmm. Like, um, so I was kind of a snob about my own work. I was, I was pretty dismissive probably of boy meets world. The one time I did feel something similar to to what your your question gets at is um oh jumping on the Ethan Hawk bandwagon again when Boyhood came out. Ah. Uh. I remember watching Boyhood and I really I enjoyed it. I thought it was it was good. Um but then it you know it occurred to me that the entire project was built on this conceit of like we're going to get the same cast and mm-hmm. we're going to watch kid. them grow over the years by coming back every year and filming with them and i remember thinking well that's a tv show 
That's what we did for seven years on board. That's not that remarkable. You know, like, and, and I get it. Like, it is because the, the compression, the compression of time is the point and the fact that it ends yeah. up being a movie. So the end product is totally different. But like, to think that it's remarkable that they were able to get the same cast together every year to play the same characters. I'm like, yeah, that's what every TV show does. And like, oh you, my God. you know, and the fact that, I mean, I think part of the reason why people like Boy Meets World is why they liked Boyhood, too, is that you do get to see the same people age. You know, and we age. were growing and going through real life changes and looking awkward at times and whatever. And I, you know, so I, that was the one time I was like, I think I think this has been done before a lot. Like, oh my <laughs> I don't God, think this is hilarious. as special as everybody thinks. But no, I do like the movie. It's good. I, were there music? What were you into musically at the time Boy Meets World was on the air? Like, were you trying to get music into the show, or is that not really that kind of show where there's needle drops all the time? And yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, because it's a yeah. multi-camera sitcom, so we weren't like Dawson's Creek or Party Five, which had good, you know, good music. Um, so yeah, no, I um, I was, I mean, I was obsessed with singer songwriters. Uh, lyric, it was all about lyrics. It's, it always has been for me, um, and you know. What ended up happening, it actually worked more the other way around. I wasn't trying to get, you know, get music onto the show because when you're a kid actor, you end up being surrounded by adults all the time. Um, and so I sort of took advantage of that and I would would ask for um, like recommendations from the, the writing staff or the directors. And I gained a lot of appreciation. So in reality, like at the time of Boy Meets World, I was listening to, I was going back to the 60s and 70s. So I was listening to a lot of Dylan, Van Morrison. Dylan. I was obsessed with Van Morrison. Um, Van Morrison. And, and then Tom Waits. <laughs> I became a huge Tom Waits oh, um, God, yes. fan. That's awesome. So yeah, it was all about lyrics and like people with unique voices, which is still kind of what I like. Um, I, you know, I was... A, a ridiculously huge Counting Crows fan that was like the first like August yeah. and everything after just like pierced my heart and I was never the same again and totally. so they actually wrote that into the show my character at one point they they right, made a reference right, right, like right. Feeny makes a reference to like my character being a, a Counting Crows fan so um, to this day I still have people recognize me and then they're like oh and I and I, I also like Counting Crows like, you do too right it was like the blurring the lines between my character yeah, yeah. and real writer awesome. um, yeah I'm going to rewatch the show now. And like when the cameras turn off, like everyone starts listening to Tom Waits immediately. Like it just starts playing <laughs> over the studio PA. And that's just, that's going to be the framing I for my Boy Meets World rewatch. What happened was one of our lighting designers for two of our seasons had been Tom Waits' lighting designer. Um, oh my and, God. and so he had gone on tour with him and he had all these great stories. <laughs> and I just, I had never heard, I, you know, I, he, he knew I liked Springsteen or he, uh, similar people. And he was like, you need to listen to Tom Waits. And I was like, the second I heard that voice, I was like, what is happening here? And then of course, you know, you either go one of two ways with Waits, right? Like there are people like my wife just can't get over the voice. It's like, she will never, she will right. never be able to appreciate him as this great songwriter because the voice is too much. And for me, the voice is like what I loved and it got it's me everything. into it. And then you, you, you yeah. get into the, the lyrics and they're just some of the best, best poetry out there. You know, it's so beautiful. Um, and so I became a, a huge obsessed Tom Waits fan. I, I started like, you know, whenever he would have a concert, I would like literally fly wherever to go see him, uh, in the late nineties, early aughts. Yeah. I got to imagine that Stay was your introduction to Lisa Loeb. Like, I think that's true for most of us. Like, what did you make of her overall? How did she slot into, you know, that's a good through line, you know, from Van Morrison to Counting Crows to Lisa Loeb. Like, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I I just think that, I, I mean, I think the lyrics 
for stay are incredible. Um, I think yeah. it's one of those examples of just, you know, I, I've listened to the song. I know every word. I still can't tell you what's happening in the relationship. No, exactly. And I think that that's exactly. great. You know, I think that that's like, hmm. a, it's, it's like I, at different stages in my life, I can relate to different parts of the song. You know, it's like, sure. because it's all, it's, it's a confusing romantic mess. And it's, I love songs too, that have too many words, you know, like where, where it feels like, uh, it feels yeah. like somebody is like, they can't get it out fast enough. Um, and then the singers like said this breathless quality of like, but I have so much to say. And, and the song just emanates that. And it's just beautiful. I mean, it's just yeah. melodically beautiful, but her expressiveness, yeah. it's a truly beautiful song. Um, and, yeah. and like recently it's come back into my life because my, my wife is a great singer and she sings to our son every, every night, putting him to bed. And this oh. entered the repertoire. And it was sure. so nice to hear this. And so like my son who's seven now knows stay yeah. as well as he knows oh, landslide or, you know, whatever. Uh, but it's just a gorgeous song. It's like kind of undeniable. Um, yeah. Thinking about the video, I get that, that idea that she's so frustrated by everything she can't get out. Like she's sort of running around the apartment, right? It's like the right. one take thing. And like, I, I think that conveys that sense of there being, if it being overstuffed, it's overstuffed right. lyrically, it's overstuffed emotionally in this really yes. effective way. Yes. And she's sort of scrambling to keep up with it. And like, that's what makes this song so good. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I really only stuck around with her through Firecracker, her next album. And I think, you know, what's interesting is I still, I really, th I think she's a great singer. I think she's a good lyricist, but her songs get more polished or more, they get tighter, yeah. you know, and they, and what I like about Stay is that it has this more sort of rambling hmm. quality to it. It's, it feels a little more open-ended. It feels a little less determined. Like, it's almost like, if she had had more time to to write a better ver you know quote unquote better version, it would be a worse song. It would be but worse. It was, yeah. But because it feels slightly like you know demo or like a first pass at something, that's what I love about it. I love I love songs like that. I do watch her later videos, and they're so produced, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like they have budgets, you know, and they have right. back backup dancers, and just it's arty or whatever it is in the mid late nineties, and it doesn't have the effectiveness of the stay video itself. I think again, like the video mirrors that aspect of it. That like she came from a singer songwriter like acoustic background, and like she right. wanted to be a full band sort of situation. She wanted that freedom, but like the starkness of the song and the rawness of the song is like crucial to yeah. what makes it so great. Yeah. You know, she sort of fascinates me as a person, like she rockets to fame in an instant, but like unlike right. other people in that situation, she didn't seem to have a lot of anxiety about getting back there, right? Mm. Like she had this super prolific, weird, varied career, like TV shows, you know, like she's put out a bunch of records you know, but she doesn't seem at all concerned about hitting number one again. And I was wondering if like that's a hard mentality to have as a young person once you've gotten like kind of suddenly famous, like to not have yeah. that anxiety about staying on top or whatever. Yeah. No. I mean, if she really is chill about it in her in her personal life, man, I envy that. <laughs> it seems uh, like she is. Yeah, yeah. Well, then that's amazing. No, because like, you yeah. know, when you're young and you have success, you know, speaking from from my perspective personal experience, there's this pressure, you know, the incredible pressure because, yeah. I mean, and now I don't, I don't feel it, but it's taken me a long time. Um, and I think it, when you're, when you're young, there's, and you have any success in, in the arts at all, I feel like there's this, this 
idea that there's a trajectory you're supposed to follow, right? Like your career is supposed to go like, well, you as a, you were uh, young on this uh, TV show. Now you're going to go into bigger and bigger movies and you're going to, you know, become whatever. And that's just not the case, right? Like you can be a different, whatever kind of artist you want to be. Um, and for me, like I really retreated from acting after Boy Meets World. Like I wanted, I really loved school. I loved writing. I I wanted to, I retreated to academia and like kind of put my head down and like moved to New York and went to college. And, um, you know, in some ways that was like a mistake in the sense that, uh, you know, now I'm back into the industry, I'm writing and directing and like, it probably would have been better to stick around LA and like keep up my contacts <laughs> and like, but I sure. didn't really want to be an actor anymore, but I felt this pressure that if I, you know, and so I stayed way too long sort of auditioning and doing this when I really didn't even like it anymore. Um, and I, and I had, a, you know, I felt it a tremendous amount of pressure. It was like, I, I would say like most of my twenties were felt feeling like a failure, um, in a way that like, when I look back at now, I was like, no, I, I really, I liked you myself. I, I liked myself. Yeah. Like I was a good guy. I was doing cool things. I was writing all this stuff and exploring new parts of my, my life. But because, you know, yeah, I don't know. I had a friend once say, he's like, writer, it's kind of like you you were an Olympic gold medalist and then you know, you, you, there's like a depression that follows that. And I was like, oh, you're right. Because, you know, you're young and, and you just sort of go on this adventure. And in my case, it, you know, it turned into this one TV show. Like I liked acting as a kid, but then it turned into one TV show, lasted seven years, defined me to the yeah, world in such childhood. a profound yeah. way. And then of course it, you know, I also got put into this sort of like teen beat Mm -hmm. uh, pinup like version, which I was sure. never comfortable with. Like I just didn't <laughs> want to be that guy. Um, uh, yeah. and you know, so I, I don't know. I, cause I feel like there are some people who probably could have just been really happy and been like, Hey, the girls love me. I'm on TV. Let's just enjoy this. But for me, like that was never going to be my, my thing, you know, um, just, just, just didn't fit my personality. And like, I used to feel really bad about that. Now I can just say, nah, just wasn't my thing and that's okay. But you know, I used to feel really bad about it. So if she really is like totally cool with just making her music and doing it on her own terms, then that's awesome. And that's the way to be right. Yeah. I mean, she put yeah. out a bunch of kids albums. She puts, still puts out adult albums. Like she had a big food TV run. She got her own eyeglasses line, you know, of course, like, you know, she diversified, you know, she just did interesting things and I just don't get that anxiety. And I, this is all just me sensing things or whatever. It's bullshit. Right. But like, I just, you can tell when someone who had a number one hit is trying to have a num another number one hit, right. you know, and you can sort of feel the flop sweat. <laughs> when they don't get there. And like, you know, I listened to her albums immediately after Stay. Like, that was her first song. That was her introduction to like the world. Yeah. You know, and she, they had bigger budgets and she went for it to some degree, but it just doesn't sound desperate the way right. it sometimes can when somebody peaks like immediately the way right. she did. Right. Yeah. So she wasn't worried about being a sellout? <laughs> that, that was not one of her concerns. It did not seem to be yeah. a concern. No, it doesn't seem like she put herself into that dichotomy. It was like, <laughs> yeah, she just let herself be whatever she was yeah. going to be. And that's that's super healthy. I was always I was always the agonizing uh, always Ethan Hawke. So always concerned. Just don't want to stay cool. 
the, the way the story gets told, like Lisa Loeb and Ethan Hawke are neighbors in New York City. Mm-hmm. Like Ethan passes a tape to Ben Stiller and boom, she's in the movie, you know, and the song's number one. Like even back then, did you have a sense of how calculated or not that process was? Like what songs get picked for TV and movies? Like how strategic it is or is it not strategic at all? No, it's pretty, I mean, at the studio and TV level, it's it's pretty corporate or, or at, sure. least, at least then i mean now I, but there, there's usually a music supervisor you know mm-hmm. a producer and it's very um you know it's like that's like a little insider you know all, like every musician i know is just desperate to have those connections um and because they 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 really are gatekeepers tastemakers um you know and and they're great at their jobs usually um so the fact that she was able to sort of pierce that process and like you know uh, thanks to Ethan Hawke and this relationship is wonderful. And I think that happens in indie film a lot, you know, like right, I think right, in right. indie film, you're just trying to get whatever music you can for free. <laughs> so Elliot Smith. Exactly. Yeah, so you're hunting. always yeah. going after your friends. Like I always cultivate relationships with musicians um, and, and, and use my friend's stuff in like my short films and whatever. I, because I, you know, you just want access to good music. And, and if you like somebody's music, like I don't hesitate to reach out and be like, can we work together someday, please? Because I, you know, you want good, uh, it's important to me. And obviously it was important to Ben Stiller um, as a director of Reality Bites. Um, but yeah, I, I think that that is pretty, that was pretty rare. And I think it still is, but you know, unless, unless it's an indie film, like on the studio and TV, a lot of that stuff is sort of, determined by a, a, a very elite group of, of uh, music uh, producers. Yeah. Or an algorithm at this point. Right. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I, just to wrap up, I'm really curious, like when Prestige TV now wants to evoke the 90s, I'm thinking shows like Yellow Jackets, right? Where like a big part of the appeal is the 90s needle drops. Like for you, like how does the current pres- Prestige TV vision of the 90s compare to the actual real-time TV 90s? Like, do you remember the 90s the way TV shows now remember the 90s? Well, I haven't seen Yellow Jackets, so I can't really comment on on that one in particular. But my, I don't know, you know, I, I feel like... I feel like we're in a, a phase right now of of kind of making the '90s pretty great seem really awesome, um, <laughs> and I think there there is a lot of greatness there. Like there are, I yeah. think you know the number one thing is that it was the last gasp of a monoculture, right? So we can all right. we can all sort of have the same touchstones, and that's actually yes. really community building. Like, mm-hmm. and I've noticed with my podcast that. Pod Meets World, like, oh, this is a really positive. Like, we did a live show, and it's just like people. It's like it's like church, you know, like we all yeah, are like, yeah, we're all yeah. in this together. Like I have these personal memories and these people were there watching and we all kind of feel like, Oh, this was a really good time in our lives when we were teenagers. And, and it's cool that there are those touchstones. Cause I don't know if like my son's generation will have that because they all are so fractured and listen to so many different things and they're all over the place. And, you know, even like your podcast is an example of like, this is really, it's, it's, it brings people together. It's nice that we all have these things, but I will say, like, when I think about the 90s, and I'll bring this back to Lisa Loeb, one of the things that I don't think is talked about that much is, like, how much casual misogyny and sexism there was still. Absolutely. And, like, we, you know, we sort of look at the 90s now with, like, oh, this pop song and this great TV show and da-da-da-da, but, like, there was a lot of problems. <laughs> and um, yeah. and And there was a lot, you know, I remember, like, you know, in the last few years, I would say the last 10 years has been a lot of like, 
oh, right. Racism wasn't fixed by the 90s, right? Uh, yeah. Sexism wasn't, but we, I kind of grew up thinking it was. Um, mm-hmm. And so for me, reevaluating like my own attitudes and the way I, you know, treated women or talked about women and, and the way it was reflected back to me in the 90s is pretty intense when I think about it. Like I remember even in grad school, so that's, this would have been like 2008, 2009, somebody had a guitar and uh, they started playing Stay and yeah. we all sang along and uh, <laughs> I got mercilessly mocked for that. Uh, like I got really? made fun of. Yeah. And uh, like to the point where like one of my friends was like left a note on the dorm room door the next day. Like, you know, we're going to remember that you sang Stay. And, I, oh, and then I remember man. like I would have songs like, you know, I was a big Ani DeFranco fan and I would like have, I would have, or Indigo Girl, Beth Orton was a big one for me too. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. like, if I was, I remember having guys over for poker one time in the early aughts and like one of those songs came on and it was like, oh, Ryder, gotta change your tampon. You know, there was this insinuation. It's like this raucous insinuation that like singer songwriters, like male singer songwriters, like if you're a guy, you should only listen to male singer songwriters. Like if you yeah. listen to women, that was for uh, you know the Lilith Fair crowd. Like basically, mm-hmm. you have to be either a, 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 a gay female or you know. And I just hate that. Like now, I think we can accept. And I remember hating it at the time and kind of being like embarrassed for liking Lisa Loeb or Ani DeFranco. And like, I'm glad that that's over. And I don't, you know, I don't feel like that gets talked about as much. Like when we're now, we're just sort of in this, like the nineties were great and they were great in so many ways. But, um, that was one of those areas. Like I, you know, like, I think I, I don't, I don't think I could like proudly blare Lisa Loeb while driving down the street in Los Angeles in 1996. You know, I listened, but I don't think I did. Um, and that's a bummer. Yeah. Don't read Fiona Apple press coverage from the 90s, if this Oof. is your mentality. That's the worst. That's really? that's that's the ugliest it gets in terms of what you're talking about. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Right. I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, Ryder, this has been fantastic. I really thank you for your time. And thanks yeah. so much for talking, man. Thank you, man. Thanks very much to our guest this week, Ryder Strong. Thanks to our producers, Justin Sales and Jonathan Kerma. And thanks, as always, to you for listening. And now I heartily encourage you to go listen to Stay I Missed You by Lisa Loeb. We'll see you next week.